Welcome back, everyone, to another special Black Create Connect podcast episode where you're here with one of your favourite corporate, non-corporate hosts, where I speak with some of the most impactful, inspirational, game-changing Black people around the world. And today I have Mr. Globetrotter himself, Bissy uh-huh. Allenby, <laughs> aka the Angelic Troublemaker. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But <laughs> How are you? I am very well. I'm so, so happy to uh, be here with you. I know we've been going back and forth and on I... this. Uh, but the thing about the universe is that they always make things happen when they have to happen. So Exactly. Yeah. So, so we don't stress. It's like when it's meant to happen, it's mm-hmm. happening. You're here. Yeah. You know? So I, I know I gave like a brief introduction to you, but do you want to give like a quick introduction to who Bissy is before we dive into your story and a bit more about you? How, you know, that that question is such a very big one because every day I discover something about myself that is a little bit like shocking. I'm like, oh my God, is that me? Uh, but I would say that I, um, I am an angelic troublemaker and that is greatly inspired by uh, the biggest hero my life I've ever experienced, and that is Bayan Rustin, um, who was very active in the Black Civil Rights Movement in, in the U.S. It was actually the organizer of um, the March on Washington for Job and Housing, uh, where Martin Luther King gave that speech, I Have a Dream. Oh, really? It's um, a black gay man. And I didn't know that. Um, exactly. A lot of people don't know him. There's actually a story about him um, while I was digging around. I was very troubled trying to find identity because it was very important for me oh. to say, I don't think I am an abnormal for being black and gay. I think the two can go together. So mm. who have gone before me? I saw mm. James Baldwin and then I saw I saw um, Bay and Rustin. And that's when he said, we need in every bay and community a group of angelic troublemakers. And so I own that. And that, 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 becomes, that becomes part of me. So I'm an angelic troublemaker. I dabble into a lot of things. I'm a poet. Um, I'm a trained actor. I run a film production company now. I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. I've worked with a lot of companies. I, um, I'm also restless, really. I know you're active. Very, very. Like, you seem like active. When you said you're going to go to Nigeria to, to go and do a film, I'm like, oh my goodness, he doesn't stop. He's one of those people. But it's good because it seems like it gives you energy. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I drive a lot of, uh, I think I drive a lot of energy from doing something that I love. Yeah. I think for me, yeah, money is good. I live in London. You have to pay rent and everything is expensive. But I think for me, the, the, the fact that I could do something and I could see the impact, mm. not in how many sales, mm. but in how people's lives get transformed, is extremely important to me. It mm. serves as my purpose. Mm. Money is good. You know, I'm not going to be part of the people that would deny the fact that money isn't money. We need money to change the world, mm. but we also need vision and passion. Mm. And I think that I've been very lucky. And that has that's keeping me awake and keeping me restless, but in a good way. And I like that. Mm, I love that. I love that you move with passion and purpose because that's what lasts. Mm. Like always chasing, I think money doesn't always last because there's going to be times where you can't be, be asked to do what's required to do to make the money. But if you continuously have that passion and purpose, then that's everlasting. So I love that. I love that about you. Thank you. You, you wear so many hats. But as I'm, 
like to do with every single guest on my show um, is to understand them a bit more about wherever you, you're comfortable, where wherever you're st- comfortable starting your journey. Um, because I think it's important because it gives context as to why you are, who you are today, right? So wherever you're comfortable starting, yeah. do you mind just telling us a bit about Bissy's, yeah, the start of yeah, the journey? I, yeah, I think that context is very important. And, and I think... There is no better place to start than to say that I wasn't born busy, I um, oh. That wasn't my name. My mother wouldn't still call me that. And and I and I think that that coming becoming busy. I remember when I was celebrating. Um, I think it was my forty fifth or forty seventh birthday, and the poster that I did was becoming busy, and I wanted people to understand that being busy was not something that was given to me at birth. It was something I have to become. And becoming that, for me, was very important. Um, I was born into poverty, into extreme poverty. And What do you mean by extreme poverty? Because for those that may think, okay, yeah, there's different, but just give us a bit more context as to what they okay, look like. Okay, so I, I, um, I'm one of 10 kids. Hey, 10! Yeah, my father was very busy. Um, I'm one of 10 kids. I'm five from my mother, five from my stepmom. Um, and um, I grew up uh, living... So my maternal grandfather has a big land in, in a suburb of Lagos, the place called Mushin, and um, gave my mother uh, a, a, like a part of the land. So my mother built like a room and a parlor there a living room and a, uh, and a bedroom there and that's where my father my mother and five older kids were sleep so in the bedroom we have my parents bed in one corner and then we have a double bunk where my elder brother uh sleeps on the lower bunk and my elder sister sleep on the top bunk and then we have mats so mat are uh, all this um thing made out of palm fronds. So we have the mat, and the mat is where I, uh, my, se- uh, my, my younger sister, and my youngest, our youngest uh, sister, will sleep. So those are how I grew up. <laughs> it was funny because I knew when, technically think I knew when my mother and my father made our last born. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> that's how close you were. That's how, that's how close we were. That yeah, we could hear. And sometimes I feel for my parents because I felt like, you know, you might want to be cordial with each other in bed, but you can't because you have your kids sleeping yeah. on the floor just next to you and you don't even know if they're sleeping or not and, um, and hearing things and could be traumatic. And um, so, and for us, the only time we like the only day in the week that we look forward to is Sunday because Sunday morning, then we get to eat Sunday breakfast, which is like boiled yam and fried eggs. And then we get to eat lunch and then we get to eat dinner. But every other day we only had breakfast and dinner and we ration a lot. So it was, it was very hard. I, mm. and I, I also remember that we were, I was hawking and my sis, my, my siblings also were hawking so hawking, hawking is like um. So there's something we call pure water in Nigeria. So it's like water in sachet. So my mother would buy transparent um, uh, package 
bag baggins uh, bags and she will put water in it and she will tie oh, it up i saw that in ghana yeah yeah and then she'll put it in a freezer in where all of us will go to school and then she will go to work and when we come back from school we will put that in a container and then we'll go into traffic and we'll be selling to people in buses wow, and taxis. You did that. Yeah, I did I did that like even I was doing that when I was about eight, nine years old. Wow. So we were very we were very young and we were making income like for, for our parents. So that that was like how deep that poverty was. What 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 um what impact did that have on your life at the time? Because, like, did you did you enjoy it, or was it like this is just life? Or for like, me, that was the only think? life uh, I, I you, knew. That's all you knew at the time. So the, 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 I have to do this to put food on the table. It was very much about if you're gonna eat, then you have to. I mean, I but, mean, yeah. I mean, we will go out and we set the spot out, and we'll be in traffic for about maybe three, four hours after school, and um, maybe come back making five pounds. After just sitting down there, and then we put all this money together, we make another water the next day, and um and so that for me at that very young age, I knew I didn't want this life. But I also grew up in the midst of guns, in the midst of drugs, in the midst of gang culture, and as a gay guy, it was very hard for me because at this age I didn't even know very much about but, my sexuality. But you was gay. Yeah, I I knew I was gay, but I don't know the words. Really? I don't know what how, it looks like. How did you know? I knew I like men. That was right. the only thing I and I, I knew I wasn't. And fortunately for me, maybe or unfortunately, my elder brother became my buffer, so I could compare myself to my elder brother. Whatever he likes that I don't like, I then knew that something is kind of off with me. What do you mean? Was he completely opposite to you? It was completely opposite. It was very, he's, he's very heterosexual. So, oh, when okay. we were so young, love loads of women. <laughs> yeah, when we were young, he was, he was very cute and such a womanizer. I loved to play football. All of this thing that I consider masculine, I didn't really get any thrill from them. So, I wouldn't get involved in them. And so, I could, that was the beginning of me kind of questioning. And I remember that I had my first kiss when I was about 11. With a guy? with a guy and was oh, in wow. primary school and um it, and it was our fun our last year in primary school before we then moved to mm. secondary school mm. and right from my third year in primary school i've always loved to dance and i always okay. love to dance as a woman so i would tie rapper and i would dance <laughs> as a woman it was it was for me i love that <laughs> for me the stage was my safest place in this world and it wasn't shocking to my mom. I remember having that conversation with my mom when mm. I went to uni to study theater art. Right. She said, it's not shocking to me. If you had not gone to study theater art, I would have felt that something is wrong with you. Right, okay. Because I, you you light up when you are on stage. Right. There's just something about you. And I think for me, it was the only place where I could experiment with my sexuality. Right. In performative setting where I can't be judged. And it worked for me. And, um, so that was it. So back then, acting and uh, acting as a gay man in theatre as a was, woman, as a woman, as a woman, not okay, as a gay man, not right. as a gay man. Yeah, be as a woman was fine. It was okay because you're acting. Because he's acting and he's cute. Oh my uh, god, you can right. even do like the girls. Got you. you know, um, and people thought it was something that was going to end. And so I left. I went to secondary school, but also there, there were different aspects of my life apart mm. from the poverty. There was a question of my sexuality, and that there was a role that religion played in shaping me and my worldview and all of that. So this 
things were things that I look back and I said, I don't want them to shape my future. And so I was very intentional. By the time I was 21, 22, I moved out of uh, where I was born. I rented another apartment. I started living alone. By yourself? By myself. Okay. Um, and um, I started questioning faith, but I was even becoming more comfortable with my sexuality, but I was still in uni then. So this, all of these things were happening to me at the mm. same time. And mm. they, but they, they were still clouded, but I was getting clarity about what I want to be. In life? Yeah. Just to, to backtrack a little bit, you said you grew up in faith. What faith did you grow up in? Muslim or Christianity? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. So which one were you heavier on when you was growing up? Yeah. Well, I, I would say Christianity. And okay. Christianity... Funny, right? So Christianity was because if they take us to church on Sunday, uh, Sunday school, if you get all the questions right, you get gifts, and then you have sandwich. <laughs> and then when I go to Quranic school, because I was also going to Quranic school Monday to Monday to Friday what, in the evening. What is Quranic school? Quranic school is when you learn to when you go to learn the Quran. Got you. And they will beat us if we don't if we're not studying very quickly. We we'll get beaten. So for me as a child, I table test was. Sandwich and gift, basically, <laughs> and okay. so, okay. and then, and because my mother had such a very huge, I think I I could say boldly I come from a very matriarchy home because my mother had such a very huge influence on us and she was the Bonnegan Christian, so we tend to go to the church to church. Got you, okay, okay. And, and what made you start questioning it as you got older? I think it was about my my sexuality. So there was a, this conflict. It was right. when I was um. 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and but this time I went to an all boys secondary school. So I was already in a position where I know my sexuality because then I was having boyfriends in, in school because we're all boys. So there's no girl to balance anything after. So do you think your parents knew at this, at this point? Hmm? Do, do, do you think your parents knew at this point? No, my mother knew. Okay, okay, okay. Because she will come and she will mostly say, whatever it is that you're doing that God is against, stop doing it. And I was like, oh, gosh, she knows. Okay. And, but she, and she's caught me a few times anyway um, with boys. Oh, okay. So, yeah. And um, <laughs> you sound like you definitely wanted the world to know that. Not really. <laughs> but, 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 but I mean, where, where else can I go? Yeah. Um, luckily for me, my my grandmother's room happens to be a place I spend a lot of time. So if I have friends from school visiting and just want to hang out, we go to my grandmother's room and pe- my mother's caught us once or twice. Mm. Not like not like in an extremely compromising position, but mm. like yeah, you like mm. she would you would know mm, something's going on. Something is going on. Right, yeah. right, right, got you. And um, so. At my junior secondary school, um, I got introduced to an extreme form of Christianity. At that point, I really questioned. There was the awareness of hellfire. Hellfire. Hellfire, which is like a punishment for people who die in their sins, like glaring me in the face. And I was really scared. I was very... Oh, so it started to scare you. Yeah, it was, it was to scare. Right. I was really scared and I became a born-again Christian. And and then I had my first exorcism. And exorcism is? is a process of gay conversion, like a conversion therapy where I spend time in church to cure me of homosexuality. So what 
what was that like? What was that process like? Like, what happened? So, what happened was that um, after I became but again, mm-hmm. in, in, in school at about 16, um, I came out to my friends in church and I told them that I have this, I think I've been possessed, uh, that the devil has some form of control over my life. And um, we talked about that. So they felt like it was important for me to have a conversation with our youth pastor in the church. I, I, I used to go to Four Square Gospel Church then. And I intentionally want to mention the name of the church. And um, and so we spoke to the pastor and the pastor said that homosexuality is evil, is from the pit of hell, and is part of the grand design of Satan to steal young people, young boys from God, mm. especially boys that are really talented and have their light and their glory ahead of them. Homosexuality is a way that the devil wants to steal that gift that God has given to them. And then I had to do seven days of fasting and praying, and but I had to stay in the church. I discussed this with my parents, so it was okay. I went to the church, and I was staying in the church. And um, I was in 18, we were praying. My friends were there, they were praying with me. They would go home, they would come back, but I would stay in the church. And all your friends were heterosexual? I'm, I'm they were all ex- okay. heterosexual. My friends in church were com- all heterosexual. What that I know of. I don't okay. know what anything about them now. Okay. Because I don't talk to them. Mm. And I remember that, uh, at the end of the session, mm. after seven days, the youth pastor said to me, that God has healed you, but you have to believe that God has healed you. If you go out of this space, of this place and you allow the devil to tempt you to um, fall back into the scene, then you are responsible for that. And um, so I went back, we went back to school. By, by the time we got back to school, I was already in my senior year. And it was my first year in senior year. And um, and I met my, the guy I was dating in school then. I caught him off when I became this bunny again. I caught him off, but he wasn't going to let go. He was, he was like still saying, you know, we need to talk, we need to do this. So it was over lunchtime and we were chatting and we were talking. And one thing led to another and we kissed. And I was, and that, the voice of the pastor came back to me. I've allowed the devil to take control of my life. Mm. And the only thing I could think of at that moment, at the age of 17, was to save my soul. And in saving my soul, was, it was, that was happened to be my first attempt at suicide. You, you attempted to commit suicide yeah. because of that? Yeah, because, of the, because I just felt like I could redeem myself now before I allow, and maybe if I die, I could go to heaven because then de- the devil would not be able to take control of me. So I don't, I don't want the devil to take me. And the only way I can help myself is to kill myself. So you, so did you actually try to? Or was I it did. A thought? I did. did. You, what do yeah, you, yeah. Do you mind me asking? Yep. What, like, so what, what I, I try not trigger warning because I try not to. Describe it. Yeah, you don't have to describe it, but yeah, whatever but, process. But I, 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 I got. I, I remember I came back from school. I went to the bathroom. I locked myself up, and I tied something around my neck, really, and and I stood on the bucket. Um, the 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 hook in the ceiling was not strong enough. So by the time I pulled the bucket, the ceiling caved in. <laughs> 
it was an amateur suicide. The ceiling caved in. <laughs> it was like, and then everybody heard the noise and they rushed back. Oh no, I was having a shower and I slipped and I fell down. But I was not really happy. And that took away my... So no one knew? No one knew. It was many years later, I told my mom. It was many, many years later. Because that was the first attempt. There were, uh, that was the first time I had exorcism. But that was also the first attempt at suicide. There were so many um, um, overdose, you know, all of those things and many other things. Like, I just hated myself. Because you felt like you was going against what you've yeah been taught. Okay. Yeah, I just I just really really hated myself, and I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't tell my friends in church mm. because of shame of the fact that if I tell them, then I'm an, I'm not allowing God to do His work. I I I can't tell my parents because I just felt that they don't understand. I can't tell my siblings because they're very judgmental. So I was swimming in shame. I was swimming in guilt, and I was just a teenager. You know, I was just a teenager. And what I resorted to was like, just become a rebel. I was like, A plus student before then, everything just went. I mean, I remember my, my literature teacher was telling me that the school had so such high expectation of me, mm. of having an all A's in my, in my GCSE. It didn't happen. I didn't actually, I wasn't able to pull myself together to go to university until about, I, I left uni at, I left secondary school at sub, um, 18. I didn't get to uni until when I was 24. How come? Because I just didn't take anything serious anymore. I was just loafing around, working here, working there. I know my mates were in uni and many of them were like, what's wrong with you? You were one of the like brightest kids in school. But they didn't know what was eating me up. I didn't just I just didn't believe in myself. That had a big impact on you. So you yeah. you holding back your sexuality and being able to express who you were had an impact on your mental health, yeah. your well being, your ability self-worth. to perform. Yeah. Had so many knock on effects. Yeah. And it was it was then that um I came out in two thousand and four on national television. I saw that. Now in Nigeria. Let's let's talk about that as well. Like what led to that? That's a big move, you know. It was a big move. It was really a big move. And I think it was a compilation of all of these things. Right. It was like I was boiling and burning inside. There were lots of things going on. And I come from a country where we don't believe in therapy. What do I even want to tell a therapist where you know therapy is built around judgment and christian christian values and all of those things so mm. when i sit down with a therapist what they're going to tell me is let's pray about it you know and i i just want somebody to tell me there's nothing wrong with you boy that's what you wanted that's just what i want yeah. to hear because my in my head my head is so full of the fact that i'm worthless mm. i am useless mm. i am abnormal uh, I'm everything wrong and all of this. But before I, before getting to the coming out, something changed slightly in my life when I was 18. That was when I went to my first gay party in Lagos. And I saw a lot of gay people. How did you find it? Like, how, how did you discover it? It was very one? underground. Yeah. And, you know, I had gay imagine. friends in, in school. Right. And I so stopped talking I was... to them. So, But they, they, they never questioned anything. They were just moving on with life. I was, I'm the one that is like very curious and nosy. 
but they came back. We started talking gradually, and they said, oh, there's a party. Would you like to come? And I went. And that party changed something in me. The fact that I could walk in, I walked into a place, and there were like so many gay men. And I was like, oh my God. And I'd lied to my parents. I was going to night vigil. I was going to church for all night prayers. And I was young. So I was, oh, my oh God. wow. That's the total opposite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spent you all night going, going out to look and discuss. Oh my God. What if Jesus comes today? What is Jesus is choosing tonight to come? And I'm here. And I'm in this place. So you can see that even at that moment, at the age of 18, where I was seeing something that is affirming the positivity in me, I was still looking for the end of my life to, to happen. I wasn't really in the moment, but that started something. Mm. And, um, and so I, I went on, I went to uni, I studied theater art. My sexuality became a thing in uni because I was in student politics. I was very popular. And by the time I graduated, I was already in Nollywood. So I was acting oh, in wow. the Nigerian film industry. How, how did you get into, into, into Nollywood? Because as a, as a drama student, it was very easy. Because a lot of my classmates were either producers or directors or scriptwriters. So you. you just get easy audition and they just call you for all of these things. And I was on TV doing a series. And then the media developed interest in my personal life. Okay. And, um, and I was going to be outed. That already so happened. They, so they were going to just come out and say, um, this, and at this time, were you busy at the time? No, I was still Ademola. Okay. So, yeah. so, so they were going to out you and then yeah. say, this, you know, Ademola, he, he's gay. Yeah. You should know this. Right. So you kind of wanted to take it. I, I, I took it from me. And it was yeah. that taking, that process of taking it from me and my parents disowning me that made me change my name and say, you know, and Adebisi uh, means like, um, my crown, my prince has increased, my worth has increased in a way. And it's for me to just own my, my truth and own the fact that, you know what, I have self-worth. I have something that's worth dying for with pride. Yeah. And I'm not, and it's not the date of, you know, self-harming, all of those things. It's, yeah. the, it's me being able to stand up to myself, for myself. And, and he, he, that coming out changed it's just like, yeah, it was just like that coming out on the most watched TV show in Nigeria. It cost me my career, uh, but it... It hurt your career at the time. Oh, completely. I Nobody was going to... Really? I, I was cut off the series, and um, even my classmates that were, were very close will not give me a job. But your classmates knew that you were gay. Yes, yeah? they knew. Even till now, a lot of them... Uh, don't talk to you they talk but when i i mean i a few years i've gone back and say guys after coming out and all of that so guys you know will you give me a script it was like nope we can't we can't risk our career to put you on screen right because they were worried about their yeah, impact yeah. That having their careers okay so what before you actually got to that point what was your thought process what how did you decide right i'm gonna go on national tv in Nigeria and come out because that is I think in general back then what, what 2004 you said it's gonna be 20 years next year I think that's crazy I think even doing that in the UK as a black man back then would have been like a bold move so back home in Nigeria is like daunting 
Will you believe me if I tell you that I wasn't rationalizing it? What do you mean? I wasn't sitting down with a pen and a paper. You didn't think about it. And saying, okay, what's going to be the outcome if I do this? You just wanted to do I, it? I, I, I didn't think about it. So you, you didn't even... Okay. No. So so what was the... So from the moment you made the decision until you went on national TV, how long was that period? Okay, so I... So this is what happened. I was in I was in my hostel in school, mm. and my one of my friends rushed to my room and dropped an envelope on my desk and said, "Somebody just shared this with me, and they're going to publish this." At that time, I was dating uh, the West African correspondent for a very very popular international magazine, a news magazine, and um and he lives in one of the uh, big and very luxurious hotel in Lagos. So weekend, I go to spend time with him. And he also happens to be old, older than me, and he also happens to be white. So we spend a lot of time together. So we were oh, quite an obvious, weird people hanging out. <laughs> so, and, and by this time already, I was also my departmental president mm. so i was very involved and as part of the requirement for my department we have to put up place in the uni that mm. students have to come so i frequent every month i'm on stage performing in uni so there's this little university village kind of celebrating vibe that isn't to my personality mm. so um the news the school a magazine outed me on the day of our graduation so i never went for my graduation I didn't wear the graduation robe. I Why did they do that? Because they only produce that magazine at graduation. And yeah, and it's full of gossips and all of that. And my picture but was... But that's, that's not nice. Like in general, like it's just not a nice... Yeah, but you, 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 we're you? here now. We're, we're saying this. But to them, halting somebody has been gay is a coolest thing to do. That is mean. Yeah, it was very, yeah, it was really very mean. mean. And um and so that already set the pace for what was to come. And so when I saw the picture and I said they were gonna print, and my friend said he's been begging them and they wanted money and they did it. So, like, so they wanted him to pay yeah, to put it out. Yeah, and I feel like if I pay, they're just gonna have this over my neck. But it it was really hard for me because now I've always wanted to be an actor, I've always wanted to act in TV. Now I'm acting on TV. I'm 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 loving what I'm doing. And then this is here, right? So I remember I went home, I had a conversation with my then boyfriend, and it was it was really troubling me. But for me, your dad show is a show that most Nigerians love to watch. And I remembered I was sitting at home one day mm. and there was a banner that was rolling at the bottom of the show and said, oh, if you have a story for us, if you do anything, call this number. I didn't even think twice. Just picked my phone and I rang them. And I said, I have a story for you. But it gets more interesting because the producer of the show at that time happens to be a student, a law student in the same university I was going to. So he knows the story and he knows about me. Right. So when I rang up and I said, it's me and I want to talk about my sexuality it was like really yeah are you sure (laughs) i was like okay so i told the presenter who was an executive producer and they they rang me up 
say, okay, you want to do this? And I say, yes, I do really want to do this. I can say, we're going to give you time to think about it. So few few weeks passed and then they got back to me again. They said, do you still want to do this? I say, I still want to do this. Then they came back. They said they were not sure if they want to do it, that they will go back and talk about it because it was on the national TV. They came back. They said, you. so this was going back around about, I think this started around about July, August. But I went on the show in October. So you can see they're going back and forth. Everybody like, oh my God, do we really want to do this? And that was like, I went to the show in uh, October of 2004. I think everybody kind of knew what would happen, but we're kind of like, are we ready to take the risk in a way? And what's was that could happen? This guy comes on and everybody just like, mm, man. This guy comes on and it like becomes a big thing. What are we going to do about that? Are we going to... I don't think we really do risk management. I would say from my perspective, because I was just a very miserable, angry, hopeless person that just wanted to take control of his own story, of his own life. I don't I wasn't really thinking of the bigger picture. Because because you already kind of felt like, what have I got to lose? Exactly, I had nothing to lose. Whether yeah. whether I go out or I don't come out, they they're gonna say it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would be me against them or them against me, yeah. whatever way. And I'm, am I going to spend the rest of my life saying yes or no, yes or no? I remember a lot of my friends were like, oh, well, well if they do that, we could just you could just find a girlfriend, you could just have kids. Because that's what people do. And you can just kill these things. And, and people will say, oh, but he can't be gay because he has kids. Or because he has a wife. Because that's what, how, that's what people do. Yeah, there was right? a, a lot of down low. But I don't yeah. want to do that. I really do not want yeah, to do that. Even really, when yeah. I had no idea what being authentic was, when I had no idea what living a, a, a truthful life mm. could be, could look like, I, I just don't do want to live a lie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can understand that. And actually, I think you're very brave. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so not only you've done it but to stand by what you've done as well because that's what you needed to do at the time for yourself that's a very brave thing to do so i salute you for that oh, thank you um so after that happened i know that there was a law that came into place in nigeria yeah yeah so after that the show got cut off immediately that particular show that particular show the show was so running for about risked, 10 years there, right? about eight years before i went on it 24 hours after I was on it, show. that was the end of the show. It was crazy. So Nigeria media just said, nope, that's not. Nah, we don't want this woman on, on screen. For about six months, she was off, and they, they, they allowed her to come back, but she will have to, they will have to censor, screen our guests. And then she did that for about, I think, about a year plus, and she just realized that what makes her the darling of breakfast TV was the fact that she can have the weirdest people on our show and they can talk about things that ordinary people want to talk about but don't think that they could mm -hmm. talk about it and she doesn't want to have people who are reading from a script and that's been taken away from her so it's not authentic it's not it's, it's not what she wants she, she, was the reason why she created the program in the first place on my own path i lost my acting career um i started trying so many things and that led me to creating a, a a charity because coming out suddenly everybody now knows one gay person so all the gays now comes to that one gay person 
that's been on TV. Like, at least you are the gay that we know. I have a problem or I've been kicked out of my house. or For I'm advice, doing so, or okay. like I just, I, like, the burden was just, like, increasing on me. And um, so I started a charity. And that kind of gave me something to do, gave me a purpose. So what that, was a charity? So it was, a, it was an LGBT charity. And... Um, and that I think that was when it was my coming out that started give, giving me the understanding of what purpose could be. Because initially I just want to be an actor. But now I felt like, oh, I could impact people's lives. I could do something mm -hmm. for people. I could be something to mm. people. And then a few months after that, Nigeria introduced the anti-gay law because of the coming out. So that became the thought um the triangle of doom that came out from that <laughs> for those <laughs> that not, don't know what the anti-gay law is do you mind explaining what, what that so is? it's called same-sex marriage prohibition act and the law we the law prescribed 14 years imprisonment for anybody who is 14 years, 14 years for known or perceived homosexuals so i would okay. be i would be considered as a known homosexual so i would go to jail for 14 years but you can perceive somebody. So I could just look at you and I can perceive that, hmm, she looks like a lesbian. Prison. Yeah, prison. Wow. 14 years. The question is if I come out, does it mean that I'm straight or is this like a, mm. like a re-educational program or something <laughs> like that? Mm. If you get married, you go to jail for 14 years. If you witness the marriage, you go to jail for 10 years. If, if you, you So if you go to the wedding. If you go to the wedding. Wow. If you officiate the wedding, you go to jail for five years and then you get fined. You cannot register LGBT organizations. You cannot fund LGBT organizations. You cannot gather in, you cannot have an LGBT gathering. You cannot, so the, all of these things. You cannot publicly express same-sex amorous affections. And that, Bit and you was, can go to jail for that as well. Yeah, you go to jail for that. And that, that bit is quite funny because when they say same sex, what they're saying is that if you and your girlfriend are walking down the street, two straight women holding hands, that That's, is... That is like wrong. Uh, yeah. And you, bless you. <laughs> and and you, could go, you could go to jail for that. So then that for me became another burden because I felt responsible for that. Got you. In a way. So that also like weighed up on me. But I was, um, and then in 2007, uh, because of the work that I was doing, I was invited to the UK. So that was my first time of ever leaving Nigeria. I came to London to attend Terrace Higgins Trust Conference. THT is the biggest LGBT, is the biggest gay men HIV charity in the UK, still in existence. Oh, okay. Yeah. They've been around now for more than 30 years. Yeah. Like yeah. That. And it came about because Terence, who happened to be a, a young gay guy, died of AIDS and they set up the, mm. the organization in his honor. And they invited me here and I spoke <clears throat> because by this time I've already worked, I was already working in the HIV sector mm. in Nigeria. So I talk about the work that we're doing. I did some media runs. I spoke at, at the BBC Network Africa and all of that. I went back to Lagos. I said some things on radio here, which I, maybe I shouldn't have said, but attacking the government and all of that and talking about- you were angry? I was angry. I was very angry. I've always been very angry. And I went back to Lagos. I was detained at the airport for 24 hours. And then when I got released, I went to my house. A month later, my house was broken into and um, I was lucky to not get killed. Um, that happened on the night of April 2027, 
on by the 11th of April 2027, I was out of Nigeria. Completely. On my way to the UK. Completely. Completely. So these people are also f- potentially physically trying to harm you. This is a next level of hate. Right? It was it was a top level. It was a top level. You could have lost your life. Yeah. I have I have many friends that have lost their lives because of that. That that have been attacked. Yeah, and killed for being gay. Yeah, you know, you just the thought of it. That somebody could walk into your house and I mean I was tied up. I was beaten. Really? I was beaten and and, rem- and no no one was there to help you of course yeah. like because I wasn't allowed to shout and I you know there was there was something that was said that still like when I when I talk about it, it just it just give me a bit of a, of a shiver and that was the fact that when the guy said you know let's just get rid of him and go it was it was like I was like a mosquito making nuisance making noise mosquitoes just clap your hand and just get rid of him because they felt like they would be doing the society justice justice uh, for getting rid of know. someone like me so they tried to kill you i'm guessing and but you survived it how, how like how did that after that took place what was then your mentality that i just need to get out of lagos completely it wasn't like that okay i wasn't even thinking about that the okay. thought of leaving nigeria came from my mom okay from my parents actually it wasn't me so when that incident happened it happened over in the middle of the night um so nigeria has this very crazy law it's a very crazy law so if you are a victim of attack or anything and you sustain injuries, the hospital will not treat you unless you get a police report. What if you're almost dying? They, they will not treat you unless you get a police report. Even now? So I had to go to the police station with blood dripping all over my body that night to get a police report so that the hospital can treat me. So I got the police report. I went back to the hospital in my estate because I was living in an estate then. And then they treated me, they did something to the wound, gave me some drugs to take, and I went back home, but on the condition that I had to come back Mm. to the police station the next morning to actually explain what was happening. So this was the 10th, then I went to the police station. By the time I got there in the morning, the police said that that my explanation of the situation is not true. That the report that they had was that I was using my house to turn people gay. And the people in my estate have had enough of it. So that's why they came to my house. And I said, this is not true. Crazy thing, I was detained. I was detained. And they had to call my parents. My parents had to come over. And they had to release me to my parents, my father. So it was when... When when was this story? Just to get a timeline in my head. 2004. 2004 this happened. No, sorry, it's 2007. When, okay, cool. 2007. So this was after I've come. This is about a year... Going to three years after I've come out. So this okay. was April. So two years plus. And um, so when we, when we were going back to my house, that was when my mother said, but you see a visa on your passport. Because you went beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and I said, yeah. And I said, yes, I have six months multiple entry. And that moment she, she looked at my father and said, you need to get out of this country. That decision was made on the 10th. And I emptied my bank account, borrowed money from my mom. Got a ticket, left Nigeria on the 11th. So did you know where you was going to stay? Or what you gonna no. Do? So you came to London and did what? So the agreement we had was my aunt, I went to see my cousins today, my aunt is living in East London, my mother will speak to my aunt, and hopefully my aunt will allow me to stay with her. So um, I left Lagos 
And they left. This is hope as well. It's not this was a hope. It wasn't. It wasn't guaranteed. I left without even having spoken to my aunt. I left Lagos, and I was flying back. So I flew through Libya, and in Libya it was another. In Tripoli, they were sending a lot of Nigerians back, or keeping some in. Why? In prison because they had an agreement with the EU to not allow because Libya kind of be like a big hub for people from Africans to get into Europe. Mm. So, so like a barrier. Yeah. So Europe right. has an agreement to stop uh, that from happening. So they were sending a lot of people back. I thought they were yeah. going to send me back, but I passed that. So I got to London. It was when I got to London. I got to London with twenty pounds. It was when I got to London. I had to call Lagos at the airport. To get my aunt's number so that I can call my aunt. And my aunt was staying in East London then. Did you have a mobile phone at the time? Or no, no, I was calling from the... Phone box? Phone box. Crazy. It was very crazy. By the time I did all of this, I think I had about five pound left. So I had to take the tube. Um, <laughs> and a friend, a friend of mine said, okay, meet me at the city hall. And then from the city hall, I can at least take you, eat something... And then in, later in the day, I will take you to your aunt because my aunt was not at home. So I can't go home yeah. at that time. So I thought city, I, when I was leaving, I told people that I was going to the city hall. Mm. So they helped me to get to, what, to Waterloo. And I went to the former city hall, which was in Waterloo, which by that time, Ken Livingston has moved to London Bridge. Mm. So when I got that, oh no, this is not city hall, it's over there. So I thought it was walkable. So I walked from Waterloo to London Bridge. And I didn't even know where I didn't even know where I was going. <laughs> and I got this bag, this rickety bag that it did. You know it, what though? It's London. These things <laughs> up until today. I was like just dragging my bag around in yeah. London. And I mean it's part of my experience. I, I think about them now. I laugh. This is eight. This yeah. is like um April. So it was still cold. <laughs> it was like yeah, it was like a little bit like nippy, and I uh, saw so my friend got me something warm to drink. Explain my story. How did you him. meet that friend? I've known him. He's an he's a Nigerian. So we're, we're doing a, HIV work. I've known of him, and um, and then he was working with the mayor of London. Right, got you. And so I um, I I just explained everything to him, and then in the evening, he put me uh, put me on district line. And told me where to come off and just use that to get to my and I I was able to find my way to my aunt's church because my aunt was a pastor. I was able to find my way to my aunt's church and then from my aunt's church I went to stay with my aunt. Which is all not a story. <laughs> I imagine. How long did you stay there for? Uh three months. Okay. And so what did you plan to do with your life to like make money and to I didn't live? know. You had no idea. I had no idea. So I have a very close friend of mine who had already moved here before mm. me. And I saw him and he was like, okay, we need to we need to get you a job. I don't know if the home office would like say, oh, you committed a crime anyway. So we needed to get you a job. So he was able to get me a job in top in top shop. And I was working on the shop floor in top shop. And um and so from there I was able to make money. Just working as shop assistant. But it was very hard for me because Nigerians love to shop in Topshop. And they know me and a lot of them have seen me on TV. And they suddenly see me packing clothes. So I, had to, deal, I had to deal with that. Oh, my God. And then um, and after that, 
during that period, I met a wonderful man and um, he just kind of just helped me to move out of my aunt's house and be able to not deal with all the stress that I was getting from my aunt. My aunt was lovely because without her, I wouldn't have found a place to stay. But I, I think it would be unfair if I don't say that staying there came with a lot of yeah, of course, issues. I can and um, and um, yeah, so that was I just kind of like went back to school. I was studying Spanish. I don't know why I was studying Spanish, but I just wanted to learn a language. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to do something with my life. I had no idea. So I went to Goldsmith. I was studying Spanish and um was acting out the window at this point because yeah. you had done that in Nigeria. You're moving on to something else. I yeah, I tried acting here. Well, what was that like for you? Oh, well, it was hard. People were like, oh my God, you you have the stick characteristic, you have the, but you have accent. Oh, maybe when we have a role for somebody who has accent, we will call you. Or, oh, we really? already see some black people today already. I was like, oh. They seem black people today already. I'm talking about 2007. How many black characters do you even have? I think you'll still face potentially barriers like that now. Yeah, exactly. As well. So back then, I can't even tell you. I I mean, I can imagine. So it was like, I just left that. And then I was working Topshop. I worked in Topshop from May. No, no, from June till um, November when I got a job with NAS Project and that for me was the breakthrough job. NAS Project. So NAS Project is an HIV organization based in West London that caters to black and minority ethnic groups, gay men and and women and trans people. Mm -hmm. And so for me being able to get a job in an office doing something that I was already doing in Nigeria and and it was giving me purpose Mm -hmm. but also working with newly arrived African gay men was really exciting for me. And I went back to school and I did my master's in global governance and public policy at um, Buckbeck College, University of uh, London. And all of this, my life, I just suddenly, I just seen seen things happening. And I I think looking back now, you know, I can be so philosophical or so mindfulness about it. Mindfulness going on concert. Oh, I was just following the process. I didn't know what I was doing, I just realized that this is an option that I have mm. and I'm just going to let that option lead me. But if I look back now, I think I was trusting the process and I was just saying, you know, life just lead me and life was just leading. And that was when the name, you know, the theme, the recognition in this country started. So I'm just talking about within two years, Things started to pick up. Since I had to pick up for me. When we, we didn't know the, the day that you changed your name. Okay, so when I came out and uh, my parent, my father disowned me because I came out to my parent the same time I came out to everybody in Nigeria. So they didn't know. They didn't. They, they, they nev- I never told them. They knew, but I never told them. So it wasn't confirmed. It. it wasn't got confirmed. You, so my father was really upset. And so oh, I'm going to cut you off from my will. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. So mm. I... Decided to change my name. After that moment. After that moment, right, I changed okay. my name. I actually did, I did it officially. I like went into court and I changed my name. I did everything. I even changed my surname. And then after some time, my father kind of like insisted I take my surname back. So I went back to my surname, but I kept this bad. And kind of just sound cool. Like, oh, busy, I me. Okay, that's fine. That's very brandy, very trendy kind of thing. Yeah. And it works. And I think that, 
believe me. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, and it works for me. It works for me. It it kind of like the name that I deserve, mm. and that name has been kind to me. It's opened up a lot of doors yeah. for you as well. It sounds like. So, just to also backtrack again, context is really important. So you decided to focus on helping LGBTQ plus men within HIV as well. Where be however comfortable you want to be with explaining that. But where did that? So you're gay, but why did that kind of come come into play? And I've I actually um, watched your TED talk, your TEDx talk in Berlin. Um, it was really it was actually really touching. Oh, thank you. Really touching. Thank you. Um, and it was really yeah, it was it was it was a good talk. It was was well put together as well. Um, do you for those that haven't heard that talk and anyone listening or watching, just go check it out. It's it's a really powerful talk. Oh, thank um, you. But yeah, was was that when you decided? Was that experience when you decided I'm gonna actively take a part and and help to raise awareness around HIV? Is that is that when it? Yeah, was? yeah. So you're talking about the story of my best friend. Yes. Ibrahim, Ibrahim, that died of AIDS complications. I think that Ibrahim represents the other men mm. in my life that have died. Uh, you know quite a few. You named a lot of men. Yeah, yeah. And those are the, those, those are the names that I, I could put forward at that time within that framework, within that frame of time that I, I had then in 2014, I think it was. You know, I had to go for therapy. To get over, over the guilt happened? of survival. Why did you have survival guilt? Because I was supposed to die. I, all my friends died. And I have what killed them and they didn't mm. kill me. And I just felt like... And for me, Brian's death was, was very touching. And it changed a lot of things in my, in my life. Mm. I don't cry when people die anymore. Mm. I, it gave me different parts. And I'm talking about the age of, I was roughly about 24, 25 when he died. And you was around the same age as well. Yeah, he was. I was a year younger than and, him. And you didn't know until you got to the hospital. I didn't know. Of. I didn't know anything. And he didn't know, I'm guessing, as well. Yeah, he, he didn't know because this is what happens. We don't go for HIV testing. We don't have any awareness around HIV. Yeah, especially back then. As yeah, well, I yeah. mean, I'm talking about 2000, 2000, between 2000 and 2004. There was mm. no, there was nothing really massive out there mm. to give us information mm. about our health, mm. right? And all the messages around HIV were for heterosexual people. Mm. So, because it's so heterosexual driven, we just felt like that's what gay straight people get. Mm. We don't think that we get that. And really? Yeah. That's interesting. Sorry, it's interesting you say that because I was I was researching someone last week, a woman, and she said an opposite narrative where she, her perspective, American woman, can't remember her name, beautiful woman. She felt like it was opposite narrative in America. They always said, oh, Africans, gay men in Africa, they usually get them. So it's crazy how the narratives were so different in different places. Because don't forget that in the US yeah. and in Europe, gay men were heavily impacted by HIV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In Africa, it was very heterosexual. Right, okay. So it was very heterosexual because that was a community that was captured. Oh, I don't know that. Because homosexuality was illegal. Right. So you have to know them to capture them in data collection. Got if you. they don't exist, 
then then you can't. No one's talking about and them. if you create an environment where they can't exist, you can see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also don't forget because of the shame and everything that comes with it. Men that could have been in meaningful, wonderful, exciting relationship with other men are married yeah. to women, but they have boyfriends. As well, in so which so case they have so sex that are not protected. Right, right. Their right. boyfriends have boyfriends, and right. their boyfriend so boyfriends have boyfriends. So you see all of this translating things. around, yeah. and then it comes back eventually to affect the women. Right. Whom this man can't have sex with condom with because how do you explain having sex with condom with your wife? Right. So. Directly or indirectly, homophobia, hatred, religion create an environment where we all lie to each other and we all put each other at risk. And then there's the, you know, the third wheel of misfortune, American evangelical. Because we shouldn't forget that a lot of the money for HIV and AIDS in early 2000, like was coming into Africa, was coming f- through America evangelical. Mm. And through the likes of, you know, um, Judge Bush. Mm. And the message then was um, abstinence. Mm. Um, be careful and just condom. So it's called the ABC. Mm. Abstinence, okay, you're telling. Don't have sex. Don't have sex. But the, the message is that don't have sex so that you don't get pregnant or you don't get HIV. Mm. So anal sex became very popular amongst mm. young teenage heterosexuals mm. because okay if you don't want to have sex i don't need to have sex with you through vagina i can have inner sex with you and you're not going to get pregnant mm. but it became a lot of things that gay men were doing mm. so nobody nobody was saying that inner sex is actually the highest driver of hiv transmission right because if that message was happening then there could have been a measure to to provide or to meet gay men at the point of their needs and have to have access to condom and, yeah, and yeah. lubricant. Yeah. So that wasn't happening. So gay men thought that, oh, all these messages, because th- don't forget, we were poor young gay men. We can't so, even yeah. have money to buy condom. We don't even know what, I didn't even know what lubricant was until I moved to the UK. What difference does that make to STDs though, um, lubricant? Because it, it, it reduces the friction. Right. And so when there's less friction, there's less injury. Uh. And if there's, if there's, in, I don't know what I want to do, sex education now, but the walls of the anus is very, very soft compared to the walls of the vagina. Right, got you. So if there's aggressive sex, the anus is more likely, the walls of the anus is more likely to tear. Right, and then you. they're more likely to have experience right. or, or contact with. Right. And so the whole system with the law or the shame, because at this time there wasn't really no law. Mm. Though we have the Boggery Law that was part of the British colonial mm. empire, but there was not really any other law, but there was a shame around it. So the mm. shame of being queer to uh, the denier of it in public health mm. and to the religious influence in, through funding from um, America suppressed gay men from mm. having access to services that could save their lives. So we were young boys. We were having sex. I mean, I mean I'm not going to deny it. That's what Young people do, but we're having sex. Mm. We're some honey bunny somewhere. And we were contracting mm. a virus that we didn't even know mm. that we were contracting. And we were just falling off like that, like leaves mm. in autumn. So when Ibrahim um, passed, um, died... Is that when everyone was kind of triggered to say, oh, let me get tested? Is that what... No, it wasn't, it wasn't really then. 
Um, so when Ibrahim died, I had a conversation with Ibrahim when I went to visit him in the hospital. And he right. was kind of like, if there's anyone that can really, that I feel that can really talk about this issue, that person is you. So this right. was way, even before I kind of like come out on TV, I'd not come yeah. out at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was like, you know, because, you know, you're quite outspoken, you're quite driven. So if there's anybody that can actually talk to people about this, it's, it's you. But I wasn't, I didn't really kind of, again, I didn't really relate HIV to gay people. I know it sounds like so at that crazy. Time, at that time, I didn't really. It was, it was unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I did. But mm. again, the thing is, we knew that we were dying of AIDS, but we were not talking about it. That bl- black gay men were. Yeah. Right, because okay. we don't want to accept the fact that that's what is killing us. Mm. Because ugh, it's, it's shame because it's disease, it's dirty. We can't accept that. So when he died, uh, with the discussion that I had with him, I started re- researching for HIV organization. Then I came across an organization called Alliance Rights Nigeria. And I started volunteering for them. Mm. I was doing work for them. And that work included talking to gay men about condom. But I was also learning mm. about how condom works, why condom is important. I was mm. learning about, you know, how to give condom to people. But lubricant was still not available. But we were talking about you, people would use like olive oil and Vaseline for sex. So like, yeah. Mm. So it was around about that time that I got tested as well, 2004. So a lot of things happened. So before you came out? Before I came out. So I got diagnosed May 2004. Mm. Mm. And then it was October 2004? I came out October 2004. Right, okay. And by this time, Brian had gone, died. I felt alone and lonely and kind of like when you was diagnosed when he died when he died so when he when i then got diagnosed mm. i automatically felt okay what has happened to him is gonna happen to me i'm gonna die that's the immediate thought that was the immediate felt. thought what was your emotion at the time as well it was hard it was hard because it was it was two things right i've already been working by the time i got diagnosed i've already been working in the hiv sector for about more than a year more than yeah. 18 months yeah and I've been telling people, encouraging people to go for testing, but I never went testing. You didn't test yourself. I've never tested. But I always encourage people to test. I always support people. And suddenly it hits me that I'm one. I had to control my emotion because I don't want those people to say, oh, you're fake, right? Because you were telling you, us to you've do You've been it. telling us to do this thing. You never did it. Now you did it. You're sitting down in the corner. You're crying. And they were at this conference that I did my testing. So I was like... Where, where you did your testing? Yeah, I did the right. testing at a conference in, in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. So there was that point that, oh my God, I can't let these people see this. But there's also the fact that, oh my God, I'm going to die soon. That's what you thought instantly. That's what I thought instantly. Because the other option was to go on medication. And I, at that time, with very, very, very toxic drugs that were available... If you start medication, it just shows that you know people that have HIV because of the way that they look, because of the way really? the medication yeah. make them look. What does it do to them? It was so bad. Sometimes it suck up their faces, suck up the fat on their faces. So, oh, so, it's, so it's the medication. It's the medication you look that, sick. that, that, okay. that do, I was like, I'm not gonna. I don't want to look like that. So either just keep quiet and just let it go. And even if I start medication, am I gonna explain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To my parents, I never. See, today I never had a conversation with my parents. About it? About it. I never did. Wow. I never did. I never did. And and so I just bottled it up. But I was was very fortunate that at the point of diagnosis, there were 
amazing people that were there to support me, to listen to me, and to encourage me. And those people helped me to deal with the diagnosis in a way that gave me the chance to still be alive today. And so I dedicated all my HIV work to my best friend. And that when I had the opportunity to talk about, to give it a TEDx talk, I just felt like I need to immortalize the most amazing human beings I've ever met on, on the face of this earth. And that was Ibrahim because he gave me the purpose to become me. Mm. Yeah. I'm just taking it all in. Oh, thank you. How are you feeling right now? Oh, I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I'm, again, when we talk about luck, I'm very lucky. Mm. And I'm very lucky that with trainings and trainings and leadership programs and all of that, I've been able to learn to be able to tell a story in a way that is empowering for me, right? And it's also empowering for the people that will be hearing it. And it doesn't mean I don't have emotion, but I understand the fact that this is part of me. This is part of my journey. And I'm grateful, no matter how hard my life has been, and it's been very hard. It sounds like it. It is very, it it's been like very, very hard. I mean, my first winter in this country, I was homeless. I was sleeping on the street. I was spending oh. time in a gay club, hanging around the corner. Maybe somebody, if I get lucky, I get picked, and somebody take me home, and then I have a warm bed, and... You know, so did you and did you find it difficult to also disclose to people every time as well you was with them? This is your situation. I that I'm I was homeless or that I'm HIV positive. Both, both. I, I well, I couldn't even talk about both of them. Really, I couldn't even talk about both of them because even in the UK at that time there was a lot of stigma around around, it. around HIV. But also, don't forget, I'm a I was a well, I'm a black man, a black gay man yeah, yeah. in London. Yeah, I realized. Very quickly, thanks to the black gay network that I joined to, that I am as useful and I'm as desirable as my dick. Oh, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean? Because that's what people see. I don't exist. Right, in the scheme of things, within the gay culture in London, as a black person, I don't exist. I'm as, the only thing I'm useful for. Mm, is that, okay. Got is you. that. But yeah. And we can have a we can have a different conversation around mm. that. You know, you go to club and people don't even bother to say hello to you. They say, "How big is your dick?" Or people just put hands inside your trouser to size you up. That oh really? That's so because funny. that's just what you put up with. As and you just wanted to sleep somewhere that night. Yeah, I just I just wanted to. So I'll go to club, and I and I realize that okay, if I need to have a bed to sleep in and need to like put myself out there in that way right. um then went to do sex work um because again that that was where i could make money well. and he says i'm not ashamed to talk about these wow. things i went into sex work i made a guard when i claim asylum wow. i claim asylum in the uk in 2008 um december january so it was i think it was february 28 i think of january i did between january and february i claim asylum and I was sent to um, Wakefield and I was on gay dating, gay Romeo. That was the gay dating website. I met this white guy there who I met. And he just told me, you know, you know you're know, you a good looking black guy. You do this, you have this, you have that. You can make a lot of money. 
by just and being an escort. Wow. And you, and again, with that, did you protect yourself or was it just like free for all kind of situation? It was whatever the money comes for, how really? much the money is. Because you don't have a choice. I mean, I wouldn't say you don't have a choice. You, I, would, I, I think that would be unfair on sex on people who said sex to say that they don't have a choice. Yeah, I have yeah, a choice yeah. in the scheme of thing, but I also look at, I have to send money home. I have to pay rent. I have to do that. I have to do that. There's a lot of pressure on me. I have to go for the ISB there and it includes whatever it's available. Well, you get a medication from the UK at that time? Yeah, I got medication from okay, the UK. Okay, so, and, yeah. and they don't, dis the UK don't discriminate? No, no, UK don't discriminate. Yeah, yeah, they give it to everybody. Fantastic. Yeah. That's, UK that's was really not discriminating at that time. So I was, I was, I was having access to medication. My VARA load was, was gone down. My CD4 can has gone up. I was, I was living well and I was doing well. Perfect. Uh, being on HIV. And yeah, and my life was just getting itself back together. Perfect. That's a lot. Yeah. So, so I'm grateful for life because I don't think that if life has been kind, and then people say, oh my God, it's just been others, people, walk people, whatever. But life has been kind to me to give me the story that I have to tell. Because if it has not been kind to me, um, I wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you. I'm here because of those stories. And I think that life has been so kind to me that at every point, he, life never allowed me to go too deep. There's always someone there to, to make sure that I'm okay. There's always someone to just guide me. Like, you know, and I'm grateful for everybody, whether they've been mean to me, whether they've been nice. They, they told me something, mm -hmm. right? And that's very important to me because I wouldn't be able to do the job that I am doing today if I don't have those firsthand experiences. These are not things that I read in books. These are the life that I lived. So where are you at today? Let's, let's talk about where, where, like where you are today in regards to your business and what you do because you have a lot of lived experiences that I think enable you to work with empathy and understand different perspectives from the DEI perspective but where how did you get to where you are today because I think you've, you've achieved a lot and yeah, I think thank you I think a lot of the things that you share today they're very sensitive and I think it's going to shock a lot of people in the sense where you've like you've gone through so many hurdles and barriers and and everything so talk to us about like the busy today because you know, we want to raise the vibrations <laughs> up. So. Okay, let's do that. I mean, after I claim asylum, I came back, I went to uni, I got my degree. And, Amazing, um, congrats. Thank yeah. you. And so I started having the opportunity where people were inviting me to come and talk about the work that I was doing. Then I was funded by the New Arm Council mm. about supporting newly arrived gay men mm. to have access to HIV testing and HIV treatment. Mm. And then I started giving lectures and then I started talking, gradually started talking about my story. I was working just in the HIV sector. In 2011, uh, the funding came to an end, and um, I was working for uh, a research company called Michael Bell Research, and I was, I was a research director. I was helping them. We're doing a lot of research in the UK within the public health sector. And I think it was at that point in 2012, I think I decided that I wanted to go, I want to be a freelance. I don't want to work for anybody. I want to set up my own business. So I set up, I set up the Bissellement Consultancy then, and the whole idea was to work for different organizations around HIV and black gay men and African gay men. 
in a way, because again, people tend to say everybody black is black, but a lot of Africans struggle accepting blackness. And that's a conversation for another day and why that is very important to talk about. And so, and then I was um, asked by if, uh, someone that, like a mentor to me and said, oh, there's this new organization they're about to set up and it's called Kaleidoscope Trust. And in the UK? In the UK. And they're looking for people. And I just said, you know, they need to get you on board because I can see the work that you're doing. But I also know your backstory. And I think your backstory would be great for them. And the guy that was setting up the organization then was the was the ex-communication chief for Tony Blair. So we met at the House of Commons. We gathered together and they said, oh, we really love you. We wanted to come on board. And after a few meetings, they said, okay, you're going to be the spokesperson for this organization. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and so I became the spokesperson for this organization. And bam, I was on TV. Just like that. I was on Sky News, I was on BBC, I was everywhere talking about my story and why this organization that is trying to equip African LGBT organizations on how to communicate and how mm. to build strong communication platform. Mm. And everybody was seeing me, sharing my story. And from there, I will get caught to speak at conferences, at events and all of this. And it started coming up. And then I started seeing things. I started seeing discrimination even in the you know, diversity and inclusion spaces. I did not see who get paid more, who get paid less, who get cab, who get to take a train, who get to do this, who get to do that. Who know all of these things was going on? I was like, okay. And I wasn't going to take it. I have suffered enough for me to allow people to cheat me. So I wasn't going to take it. I started speaking up about it. I started calling out racism because by this time I started experiencing it. I started understanding what it means to be, to be black um, and I started coming out to talking about the injustice, even in the in in the HIV sector and access, and who, who who's got access and who does not have access, and what kind of access are available. So I started talking about that, um, and this was between 2012, 2013, 2014. But something has happened in 2012, which is very interesting. I was um, at home, and I got an email. It was a very random email, very very random. And it was from the office of the president of the United States of America. Mm. U.S. was going to U.S. was hosting the International AIDS Conference, which is the biggest AIDS conference in the world. And this is after many years because if you are HIV positive, you have to disclose, and possibly they won't allow in, you in the U.S. In, in the U.S. and they won't allow you to come in. They don't allow a lot of people at that time to, to get inside to get the you, U.S. if you have HIV. Really? So Obama came in, and Obama got rid of that law. And because Obama got rid of that law, um, the International AIDS Society decided to host the International AIDS Conference in Abuja. So Obama, um, Michelle and Barack were going to have uh, a, uh, a reception for selected activists from around the world in the White House. So I got the invite. Ooh. And I went. It's gone. It's fine. I think the battery's exhausted. It's fine. We're almost done anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, but your battery's exhausted. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's tired, but it's okay. Yeah, so I, I got the invite. I went and um, that kind of gave me a boost in a way because people were like, oh my so God, invite them. I was like, oh my God. So these things okay. are very important in the scheme of things, who you know and who you hang out with. Mm. And then I got back here. Um, and then in 2014, I joined the Aspen Institute and I learned a lot about how to tell my story, how to put my story together. And when I talk about being able to tell my story, 
without getting over emotional about it. I learned that. Then I I joined the Moth, the Moth um, Global um, Program. I also learned the art of telling story. And then gradually, I was able to put into thought my journey and tell my story. And then from there, I was able to develop DNI framework yeah. to help companies to understand people like me and to cater to people like me. So that was my journey into into DNI. And then after the law eventually was passed in Nigeria in 2014, I started the BC Alimi Foundation just as a way of giving back and also confronting the demon that I created because the law came into existence. The idea of the law started because I came out. So I started the foundation and the foundation is now eight years old and it keeps taking me back to Nigeria, making me do a lot of work um, in Nigeria. And now I started uh, Zihone and Zihone is also my own way of working with corporates to um, multinationals who are open to set up business in Nigeria to say that you can't do, you can talk about diversity and inclusion the way that you talk about it in London, you can talk about, you can talk about it in Lagos, but you just have to know how to be culturally sensitive so that you don't turn people up, but you don't need to dumb it down mm-hmm. in a way. So that's, that's the work that I do. And now I've gone back into film. So there's a lot going on. Oh, you've got a really dynamic story. Thank really you. Really dynamic story. And I think very different, of course, very different to a lot of people that have come on the podcast. Very different conversation. But do you know what? I'm a, I'm a real person that, that <laughs> I'm, I'm open to having different types of conversations because beyond being black, we've got different stories and we're human. And it's important to talk about them and recognise them because I think it, it would it would inspire at least one, mm. at least one person. So I'm honoured that you've that you've come to share like your whole journey, what you're doing, your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And once again, sorry, it's taking so long for this to happen, but it happens at the right time. So thank you very much. It's okay. <laughs> Is there a key message that you want to get out there to everyone? Um, that's really important. I think the message is that I didn't know my own strength. In all of the things that I went through in life, I didn't know my own strength. I think maybe if I'd been aware of my own strength, I will I would have maybe I wouldn't have have so much doubt about what I can do. And you know, it hits me when Whitney released that song that I crashed down and I tumbled, but I did not crumble because I got through all of this pain, though I didn't know my own strength. Yeah. And I look back now and I tap into that. So if you're listening, if there's anything I just want you to take away from this is recognize that you are a very powerful person. No matter what you're going through, and this is no motivational talk, you're a very powerful person and you need to recognize your own strength. I didn't live in the moment. I couldn't because I didn't have the opportunity. I didn't have the choice. And what that has taught me is when things happen to me now, there's always one conversation I always have in my head. And that is, I always take a minute, I walk away from everything, I go to a quiet space and I say, life, what is it that you're preparing me for? This is not happening in a vacuum. It has never happened in a vacuum. But whatever you're preparing me for, please just make me 
able to go through it. And I always know that when the storm passes and the rain dies off and the sun shines, I say, okay, life. <laughs> this is what you're preparing me for. Thank you. So whatever you're going through, I just don't want you, I want you to know life that life is not hating on you. Life is preparing you for something. Maybe follow the process and trust it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think I even needed to hear that as well because things be happening on a day-to-day basis. I'm like, what's, what's going on? What's going on here? This is stressful, you know? And I, as much as I've, I'm very open, actually, with the audience, I emotionally go up and down sometimes. Mm. Life can really take a toll in different areas. And I think it's important to remember that, that, you know, I'm still a believer. So, <laughs> so I, I know that God's taking me through something up and down. Do you know what I mean? But, you know, thank you for sharing that, those words of encouragement once again for your story. Um, where can people find you? Oh, I'm always on Instagram. At all my socials, they have the same handle. I'm one of those very lucky people. I just have one name on all of very my lucky. socials. <laughs> very lucky. Nobody picked my name. So, BC Alimi on Instagram. BC Alimi on LinkedIn. BC Alimi on Twitter. BC Alimi on Thread. BC Alimi on TikTok. BC Alimi on Pinterest. Facebook. I don't know how to use Pinterest. Do I tried. I, I, I was like, either. oh no, I don't know this. <laughs> I only go there to look for inspiration for clothes or anything I'm looking for. But apart from that, yeah. And, you know, few, about three or four weeks ago, out of nowhere, I started this um, 90 seconds discussion. I just have conversation with myself and I recall them and I put them. I saw on, one of them actually. And Yeah. And for me, it's just like, and the feedback had been amazing. Um, and I just felt like, yeah, maybe that's the thing that life wants me to do. I don't know where it's going to lead to, but I follow it. the process. Go with it, go with it. Well, thank you once again. And I want you all to just, where you are, where you are today, just give Bissy a round of applause. We're doing it virtually here because thank life you. be laughing and you're here and you're surviving and you're doing your thing. So, well done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Backbreak in the podcast. Please remember to share this episode. Um, give us a rating, follow Bissy, follow the podcast. And um, yeah, we're here to love and teach you all. So I'll see you all on the next Black Creek Connect podcast episode.